Hello, listeners, and uh, welcome to the second in the series of the photovoltaic uh, podcasts. Um, I understand from feedback, we were getting some really good feedback from the first podcast we had. And today, um, I really want to review uh, what is going on in the world as far as regulatory type issues and censorship for CAM practitioners. I feel very strongly that it's important that we are equipped with the tools we need uh, to defend ourselves and to understand the process that we might be entering should we be challenged. And therefore, it's my great pleasure to welcome uh, Mr. Barry Tanner uh, to the podcast, who is a regulatory consultant to the CAM sector with over 25 years' experience of developing regulatory processes and dealing with government bodies, both UK and abroad. He's also a professional witness for both the Crown Prosecution Service and private litigators, and regulatory lead of a number of professional associations, uh, particularly within our sector. Uh, within this role, uh, he has helped many CAM practitioners to defend their position and their right when it comes to being able to speak out uh, and not be overly censored. So it's with great pleasure that I welcome you, Barry, uh, to today's podcast, and I, I look forward to learning more. Well, thank you for the invite. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, today in particular, if I could, I would like us to, as I said, go through the processes, help people understand how some of these processes work, who they are, the organisations. And I wanted to start with the one that's coming up more and more uh, within our sector is something called the ASA, uh, which, of course, you all know is the Advertising Standards Agency. And I really wanted to just look at what their role is. Why are they contacting more CAM practitioners and challenging their web content or their, their therapies? Okay, nice start with a nice broad subject. Um, firstly, let me just point out that the, the advertising standards, it's the advertising standards authority. Um, and that's one of the things which causes an awful lot of confusion. Um, so uh, let's address that first of all. Uh, the, the advertising standards authority limited because it's a limited company it's 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 not a, an authority as we would usually refer to the police or the armed forces or some other government body that has an authoritative role um, it's simply a company established by the advertising association to to administer a voluntary agreement on advertising content um, so perhaps it's best to look at first of all before we really go into what it does and how it does it, um, you probably want to look at how it how it came to be, first of all, very, very briefly. So um, I started off in 1961 as the, the Advertising Association's Committee of Advertising Practice um, and then formed in 1962 into, into the Advertising Standards Authority. Um, now, let's think how it works first of all uh, at its original inception the process of advertising was all done through magazines and newspapers and all of those magazines and newspapers were distributed relatively centrally so there was a, a limited number of distributors so therefore the, the process works that that if you had the distributors to agree to something and your magazine was carrying something they didn't agree to, 
um, then it was relatively easy. It was quite a powerful force. You could stop that magazine or newspaper being distributed, cause a huge financial impact to the newspaper, and, 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 and that gave a great uh, level of control. Um, as to how that's funded, how they, they, they were funded to do their job, um, was that they, they, they received a voluntary levy on advertising placed in these newspapers and magazines. Um, so a, a process which in itself is, is largely open to abuse. And, and, and in 1974, uh, they, they set up something called the Advertising Standards Board of Finance Limited. And that made it extremely difficult to actually trace where that levy was going from who was paying it and, and where they were paying it to because the advertising standards authority is now funded by the advertising standards board of finance so when you say to the asa where do you get your money they say well we get it from asboff we get it from the board of finance um uh, there's, there's no question of, of, of how who, who contributes what and, and and how much but we can say that the uh, the food and the pharmaceutical industry are two of the biggest advertisers in the UK. So uh, you can draw your own conclusions. Um, so along rolled the ASA um, with this level of control about the magazines and the newspapers and their distribution. But then sort of as we exited the 90s, we started to get a situation where the magazines and newspapers, A, weren't centrally distributed and B, were distributed, uh, there was a lot more electronic distribution. And then that became websites and the internet and so on and so forth. So in uh, 2011, um, the uh, Advertising Standards Authority Limited um, uh, simply announced that they were extending their remit to, to cover advertisers' websites. And that's it, that's when a huge amount of problems start to kick in. Um, now, does, I'm not sure if I answered your question. What's their function? Uh, their, their function really is very clever because they, they're a compliance partner to trading standards. So the idea is that they do all the legwork, as it were, and um, have a polite communication with anybody who um, they believe to be breaking the, the law or regu relevant regulations, um, and uh, resolve a lot of issues before it goes into the expensive process of the government's enforcement process, the Trading Standards Office. Okay, well, thank you for that. And yeah, that's a really good insight into them. I mean, to say a lot of people have never really come across them before. Um, so thank you for that. And I suppose the other thing is, you know, what are their legal rights? What can they do to a CAM practitioner? Oh, well, you can answer that up in, sum that up in sort of two sentences, really. Uh, nothing except stick you on their naughty wall. Now, that's, that's probably a very flippant way of putting it, but they have no... Uh, they, not, they have no powers of enforcement, they have no legal authority, they can do nothing at all to you other than do what any other member of society could do, which is to refer you to trading standards. Um, obviously, they, they, they have this wonderful website, and if you don't agree with their judgment um, then or their rulings, uh, then they pop you on what I like to call their naughty wall and you get a full descriptor of why they don't uh, they don't think you're correct um, and, and that's about it um, now 
technically, if, if they're doing something in that process, um, which uh, impacts on your business and you are able to prove it's not correct, um, then you could seek legal recompense from them. Um, a lot of people, a lot of people do. It's actually a little becoming in the cam sector a little bit of a, uh, a red badge of courage, to be honest, to be on the wall. It's great. It drives a lot of traffic at you. And um, in a lot of cases, it can be quite helpful. In, in any event, it, it's, it's um, completely unenforceable. They can do nothing at all to you, despite how uh, horrible their letters sound when they arrive. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah, it's uh, it has upset a few people, um, certainly when that, you know, they've spoken to me about it. And it's interesting to see that that's about as much as they can do. And like you say, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, slurring one's character by putting it up there if they really don't have a case. So I suppose the next question is, if it gets referred to the trading standards, or TSO, as a lot of people will refer to them, what what happens then? And who are they? Well, let's let's pause for a second and just, if I may, just just talk very briefly about the process of consideration, okay? Because um, the, the the advertising standards authority have a very interesting consideration process. So, so what we're used to in this country is that we we have an adversarial system. So, if you're in court, if you're at a tribunal. At a hearing, um, then we have two parties with opposing views or differing views. Um, both parties will be permitted to produce evidence to support their views, and then the op opposite party is allowed to examine the, that evidence and cross-examine it and challenge it with witness and examine the whole process. Um, and that's what we're used to. That's what we, we view as authoritative. Um, the ASA doesn't do that. The ASA's process um, says, hello, we think you've done something wrong. This is what we, we, we want you to do. We want you to send us evidence that you're not, not wrong. And then when one does send that evidence forward, uh, the, there is no cross-examination, no explanation, no um, undertaking of who looks at what, where, when, and how. One simply receives a statement that says, thank you very much. We don't accept that evidence. You're guilty up on the naughty wall. So there's no process once you've submitted that evidence. Um, and I've seen in my time some very hefty pieces of work going in. Um, and it can be completely discounted. So uh, there's we accept from we expect rather from from a body that has the word authority at the end of it that there is one of these due consideration processes, and that doesn't exist. So um, depending on the nature of the the huge and savage infringement that one of the complementary practitioners has committed. Um, uh, when you've told the ASA, thank you very much, I really don't want to play ball, go away, um, they can then refer you to the Trading Standards Office. And um, Trading Standards is uh, a lot more uh, of a structured beast to deal with. So um, they have a, a set procedure, they have to be compliant with law, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And also, uh, they have to be considerate of what is reasonable, what would the average person reasonably expect, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so unlike the ASA, trading standards do have teeth, 
they do have a range of enforcement powers um, from the service of orders to cease trading, uh, instruction for removal, right the way through to um, fines and uh, all other appropriate judicial responses. Um, so yeah, TSOs a different beastie altogether, and and one that needs to be handled um, with respect from and and is handled with respect from both sides, really. Yeah, absolutely. And so yeah, it's uh, it's unfortunate if you end up in that situation. I know quite a few practitioners who have, and at that point tend to sort of fold and go, well, whatever it is you want, I'll give it to you. Um, oh no, that's that's not the way to go. Uh, for a start, um, you, you know, if, if you've if you've been served a parking fine and you weren't parked there or you didn't do it or there was a sign that said you could or what have you, anything you want to get, you go and contest it and you explain to the relevant authority, the proper authority um, that is saying you did wrong, that you didn't and you, you have a, an opportunity to present your case. Absolutely. As I was going to go on, to, you know, a lot of practitioners at that point Fear, fear, uh, fearful of TSO, obviously, because it does oh, have, yes, have yes. teeth and, and therefore feel it's not worth the fight uh, and back off. And there is, in my view, potentially a little bit of a bullying process there because it hasn't really been contested and people are scared at that point. But yes. it, interestingly, when you see some of the practitioners deciding that actually they feel strongly enough about it, that they do want to have someone listen to their case uh, and to debate, I believe that there is a sort of um, a sort of an area where you can resolve some of your problems with them, so you can actually start to discuss it with the TSO, get them to highlight what it is that they don't like and why they don't like, and there is at least some sort of ability to negotiate different statements, perhaps change certain wording, but keep the main message, uh, you know, on track. I think that's oh yeah. My most definitely and this comes back to the difference between dealing with a proper authority and dealing with um, uh, some sort of, of, of a funded body um, the TSO's objective is is for you to be compliant with their interpretations of the law um, so that there is as with any um, uh, legal process there is um, the word escapes me from moment, but there is a dialogue there is a process which we go through um, where we will communicate, where we will put forward the case. And this, this comes back again, which we don't get with the ASA, is that we can put forward a little bit of evidence. We can, as you say, put forward changes of wording, difference of structure. Um, in, in some cases, we see situations where um, you know, things like testimonials are a lovely, a lovely area. You know, people get told, say, you can't use your testimonial. Take your testimonial off. Oh, um, that's not the case. All that TSA want to, to be satisfied of is that the, 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 the testimonial is legitimate, that it has been put forward in a proper manner. So you know, uh, to put a really silly example, if you've got something on your website that says, you know, Joe in Somerset said sometime this century that I was brilliant, you know, um, that doesn't carry a lot of credibility and could mislead. But if you've got a testimonial from 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 Joe, name withheld, 
in a village in Somerset or a town in Somerset in a particular year, uh, and he says you're wonderful and you've got documentary evidence to produce that in an ideal circumstance, a link on your website to a copy of his letter, um, then it's that, that nobody's being misled. It's a legitimate testimonial and DSO would generally be quite happy with that sort of thing. So I've seen cases where an individual has what would be considered a, a testimonial not in the best shape that has had uh, one of these draconian letters from ASA saying you will take this off your website now or we will do all sorts of horrible things to you. They get to TSO and TSO mediation process, that's what I was talking about, mediation process comes in and says oh well if you can produce this, this and this and make an appropriate link uh, that would be fine. Um, so the terror tactic it tends to get taken away when you when you know what you're dealing with and you're dealing with a body of um, a reasonable approach. You you need to be polite. You need to be well informed, um, and and you can can go forward on that basis. That that's brilliant. Yes, and you know uh, I was always told testimonials were a no no, uh, and of course some of the testimonials cover sort of medical type issues that they've got better from and so on, but. Uh, it's good to know, you know, that common sense can prevail. And once engaged with the trading standards, like you say, a, an organisation where there is some structure, uh, you have the right to appeal or to arbitration or wh whatever it is you want to do. So, great. I mean, looking at trading standards, I hear some pretty scary stories. Um, looking back to an incident in the Camden uh, sector to do with particular targeting of CAM practitioners. I think it was back in 2017 where it's particularly active. Do you know much? Do you have much background on that? <laughs> you're, you're very well informed, sir. Um, okay. Uh, yes, 2017-2018 we had very interesting development, which again has, has reared its ugly head. Um, so we had back then the department, BEIS, the Department of Business, Enterprise, Industrial Strategy, um, was funding a particular branch of Camden, of trading standards in Camden, who were then dealing with all complementary therapy referrals and taking quite a robust approach. So having having just said to you, you know, look, you can talk to these people and you can, you can mediate and so on and so forth. Um, we, we saw at that time a, a very robust, very hostile approach. Um, and I was involved with a number of cases uh, where we, first of all, challenged the legitimacy of an individual office um, uh, set up in Camden, as bearing in mind that complaints against CAM practitioners occupy a tiny, and I mean tiny, like less than 1% uh, of complaints um, to TSO. Uh, in the UK. So uh, why would you have a, a completely set up office to handle um, trade standards complaints in, in this area? It didn't make sense. Um, so the end result with Camden was that, um, how do I put this politely? It was decided that the funding would be ceased and that the office would be closed and that the individual who had led it would um, seek employment elsewhere. Um, now, that would, to my mind, normally be a very good result. Um, 
and put us back into an appropriate position with TSO, although re relatively recently, as recently as last year, um, the same process is now being adopted by Surrey and Buckinghamshire. There's another office at Surrey and Bucks Trading Standards, again being financed by BEIS, um, again being specifically um, asked to look at complementary alternative medicine processes um, to include things like homeopathy and herbal medicine, naturopathy, and nutrition, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the same questions are asked. Um, I have a client at the moment who's filing freedom of information requests to, to check on the funding process. Um, you know, it, it's back in the same thing. They're back up for the same, same process. Um, and the same questions must be asked. Why? Um, why is that funding coming? Why are those uh, sorry and bucks going and being being employed to do this? Um, a little, they're a little more sensible this time round, um, but still a, a matter of of some concern. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, the department you're mentioning with the government isn't that the department that we as a profession fall under, anyway? Are we reportable to them? Are they sort of in control of our sector? Um, they're one of the departments that would, would uh, be involved with uh, with business in the UK, yes. Okay, so under that, we would sort of fall under their, their remit in that sector? Um, well, possibly so. Um, I think many, many of your listeners would probably think we're, we're more associated with the Department of Health. Um, but we, we are in business like uh, like a, a lot of uh, um, individual people in the UK. So, yeah, we could come under the business strategy and, and enforcement for uh, trading standards and the like would come under the business department as well. So, uh, yes, uh, what's more puzzling is why the, the, the sector, this tiny, tiny blip on the trading standards register uh, should have its, uh, its own department. You know, it just doesn't make any sense at all. You know, normally, these issues would be handled by your local trading standards office. Um, and yet we constantly see this, this process being revisited where they're trying to set up these independently funded sections of TSO to, to, uh, to investigate you know, a tiny number of complaints against complementary practitioners. What is worrying about the Surrey and Bucks one is they've gone back to a load of cases from the Camden events which were, were closed down or, or no further action taken. And they're revisiting them and bringing them back up and going back to the people. You know, so we start the whole process again. And, and, and this is where you know, the individual practitioners really need um, you know, involvement. They, they need uh, advice. They need information. They need support. Thank you. Yeah, well, it's, um, I did wonder whether you would, would raise that issue. And thank you for raising the issue that it does seem to be happening again. And as I say, I've had certain conversations with people who thought they were had been through the mill in 2017 stroke 18 and, and finding themselves back in the spotlight again. So uh, hence the, the sort of renewed interest in, in this discussion, really. I mean, th there's a sort of an irony to this, though, isn't there, which is that we've got a government body of which we sort of report to, whether it be the Department of Health or, or the other group, uh, who are funding the very people uh, who are sort of charging these people. So it seems a bit incestuous, really, uh, that they, you know, public money is being spent on targeting a very small group of people um, when really they're there just to defend the consumer, surely. 
Um, it, is, it is right and proper that, that the department should, should spend its money on defending consumers and, and enforcing consumer uh, regulation, uh, prote consumer protection regulation. Um, it is questionable as to how and why such a tiny percentage of the complaints should command such an investment from said department, from, from your and my taxes. Yeah, yeah. And also the other thing that comes to mind, you know, is whenever I'm talking to these people, they seem to sort of dig me out because I've given a talk somewhere or, or made a view um, publicly. And I realise that actually a lot of the organisations, the regulatory or the membership organisations, don't seem to be doing a lot to raise this issue for their members. Uh, and that's concerning for me, and I think that they should be doing more. I mean, do, do you know anything within the sector where perhaps people are beginning to raise these issues with their members? Um, yes, I, I think the whole attitude has uh, is beginning to change. You've got guys at the, the lead of it, um, FNTP, SON, Homeopathy International, IFR, etc., big, powerful bodies that are now viewing this as a matter to get behind their members, um, that are more um, informed, a more understanding of the consideration that um, of how guys like the ASA work, um, and are much more recognized within the court system. I, I spend a lot of time um, presenting to courts so that they can understand the the type of um, requirements for a practitioner um, to belong to one of these bodies and to belong to part of the regulatory processes in the UK. Um, and to, to evidence that they're, they're not complete crackpots, that they, they have a, a high level of education in a lot of cases. Um, and, and that their voices are ones to be listened to um, and understood and respected. Um, so yes, some of the organizations are getting through to it. The, 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 the GRCCT, the regulator does a, um, a certification process where you can get your site looked at uh, effectively by you know, legal bods and, and advertising experts um, for, 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 you know, tiny amounts of money for, for people who are just practicing on their own, um, sort of 50 quid, something like that. Um, and, and so what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of the, the, the bodies that we expect to lead the process are, first of all, supporting their practitioners directly and then referring them um, to or recommending they get their, their sites accredited. Um, to make sure there's already a stamp on it. So they're getting like a double whammy um, so that when they, when, if uh, they they encounter an issue with uh, not so much ASA because they're just a complete waste of time, um, but, but the, the, the trading standards office, um, that they have in place uh, the actions to say, well, look, we've had these experts look at it and they say it is good. Um, Here's the evidence of how we support it. It's almost like you're you're making your case in advance. You're, you're getting getting yourself uh, belt and braces and, and safe. Um, and also, of course, that, that the, the recommendations from those processes mean that that practitioners are less likely to run into problems because they haven't made a daft daft mistake and fall from foul of any of the the applicable regulations. Um, but yeah, th those those sorts of there there are bodies that are leading the charge, and regrettably, there are also bodies that 
don't do the job so well, perhaps if I put it that way. Yeah, I think it's about sort of raising the profile of all of it. And, you know, within the, the supplement sector, we sort of work with trading standards compliance partners. And it just strikes me we don't seem to have that within the CAM practitioner sector yet. And maybe that's something we should look at. Uh, and also whether we could sort of start to build a resource where practitioners could look at such cases and learn from them too. So in other words, we could actually have some information where people could learn from it as well as getting the accreditation. You can, and again, a lot of those profession bodies have that sort of resource available to their practitioners, um, to their members. Um, it, it's it's become a lead topic. So you, you go and ask them is the, is the simple answer there. Okay, and to, to be clear for people who are listening, where do they go to have their website accredited? Is, is there a, a website you could give us? or um, They would go to... Um, grcct.org and uh, and select the tab for advertising certification. Wonderful. Well, that would be most useful for them. Um, I suppose the other area I wanted to touch on is there are certainly some rumours going on uh, around accreditation of colleges and where you see a lot of colleges where they're saying things like, you know, mine's equivalent to a grade five or a level five or to a level four. Um, and I think that from what I'm gathering, it's beginning to be questioned whether they really are in this situation. What are the ramifications if it's found that they are not, uh, you know, uh, a grade five or a grade four or equivalent? Do you mean the level of awards? Yeah. Um, there's a bit of a buzz going on at the moment because um, obviously, um, there are framework awards uh, which are on the national framework and those have an agreed uh, level educational value um, where we have private providers offering courses or courses which are not on the framework uh, there are uh, different schools claiming an equivalence um, most of the time perfectly legitimately um, however uh, there have been a, a lot of um, cases and involvement recently with both ASA and TSO in regard to the legitimacy of those claims and most importantly how those claims are evidenced because it's quite a process um, to evidence an educational level um, and requires a certain amount of understanding on both the provider and on the recipient. So um, yeah the, the there's a lot under development in that area, Andrew. I'm not, um, I'm not quite sure how much depth to go into. There is a concern um, that um, it may come under the Trading Standards Office to challenge um, providers of education that are not on the framework um, that, uh, as to how they should make those claims and what evidence they would need to provide in order to maintain those claims on their websites. Thank you. Well, I suppose, yeah, where I was coming from with that is if, one wanted to make sure that a college was properly accredited. I assume some of these organisations could again steer people in the right way. I'm just thinking of people coming into the field. If you went and trained in an organisation that was claiming to be equivalent to a certain level and it wasn't, I assume the ramifications are then on your qualification, I suppose potentially your ability to practice and get insurance. Oh, well, the bottom line is, is yes, your, your assumption is correct. Um, 
if, if I make a false statement to entice you to purchase a product, um, uh, then the product doesn't function as it should, then um, a product or service, then um, then I would be liable for that. Yes, definitely. And and also what you have to take into account is if you're operating in breach of the law, um, could have a severe impact on your, your insurance cover because your insurance, you know, if, if I'm driving my car whilst drunk, that's going to impact on, on my insurance. Um, so, uh, yeah, there, there could be significant fallout for this. Yeah. And just, again, just thinking, you know, are there places that they can go to find organisations that have been vetted? What, what, would um, you, what would you do if you were starting out and you wanted to, say, for instance, go and qualify in nutrition? What are the key points you're going to be looking for to make sure that course is kind of up to the standard it's claiming, if it's claiming one at all? I would be looking for accreditations by major profession bodies. That that would be the only key you've got at the moment. If they're not on the framework, it's got to be the profession body, and you've got to have a profession body statement behind it as well. Um, so you, 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 it's no good having, and I, and I don't think most people in their their right mind are going to be going to a course that isn't appro appropriately accredited by a significant profession body. Okay, I mean there are courses out there that don't make claims and they're just teaching people and that's fair enough you know they haven't promised anything they haven't delivered it's more if you went and trained and put two years into training you know the potential impact on the, the qualification so thanks for clarifying that pleasure the other area just the final bit really i wanted to look at um really is you know if you are in a case for instance with something like the tso and you've got insurance a lot of practitioners say to me look you know I'm going to put this up on the website and I say to them, really, it should be looked at or accredited or get some advice. And they go, don't worry, I'm insured. My experience of the insurance is that if they don't feel they've got at least a 50-50 chance of winning, they sort of leave you pretty much on your own. And this is something I've warned people of time and time again. Do you have any experience of that, anything you might want to add? I think it comes in, in a similar manner to the representation of the service. If you're operating outside the law, um, you run into one problem. If you're operating um, in a position where your insurance provider is uncertain whether they would win the legal battle, it is, a, it is part of their insurance provision that well, they, were, they have the right to decide whether they choose to act and finance your defence or whether they choose to settle, or indeed in some circumstance, whether they choose to walk away. Um, so uh, these are yet to unfold. I can only tell you that the, the, the whole area in this regard is, is gonna get very interesting um, uh, over the next few years. Um, and we are possibly going to see some cases um, go through to the higher courts um, to get some clearer direction on this. Um, but certainly as a practitioner, I'd, I'd want to make sure that, um, you know, everything was belt and braces, uh, before I run into the situation with TSO. Um, yeah, thank you. I mean, you know, I would assume that if they went and accredited their site, you could argue that you have at least tried your due diligence, you know, where else, what greater authority would I go to sort of idea? Um, 
Yes, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's the whole point. Get Make sure you've got all your ducks in a row. You know, if you're going to put up a good website, make sure it all functions and works properly. Make sure it's legally compliant. Uh, there's no other way of putting it. You've got to prepare yourself for these because ASA, only you know, unlike a, a regulator which um, or a compliance partner to a regulator, which may need to look at uh, a build-up of a number of cases, etc. ASA can, uh, just responds on a single complaint, um, and, and so it makes the whole process open to such abuse that um, you know, if a, a competitor or somebody who doesn't like what you're doing um, starts firing in complaints at ASA, they're going to act on all of them, and you're going to end up at TSA. For God's sake, be prepared. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I've told, you know, years ago, something like 97% of all complaints come from their opposition rather than from concerned people or, you know, the public as, as such. And I don't know where they get those figures from. But if that was true, yeah, it seems to be that, you know, it's not really about public safety at that point. It's more about competitors dropping each other in. Yeah, and also you bear in mind that ASA don't tell you who made the complaint against you. Yeah. Absolutely, uh, it's not it's not what you call transparent, is it? And you know no. the other the other bit with insurance that concerns me is, I say, you sort of you, you get this idea of um, this fifty fifty win, uh, and th they back off. And I think it's very important for people to ask a few more questions of their insurer, mm -hmm. and what the definition of due diligence, etc., is, because again, I think between asking the questions of the insurer, insurer, and asking questions of the association you should at least have your belts and britches and your, your ducks lined up uh, to be able to make an informed decision, which is, again, a, a thing that everyone's looking at these days. Um, you've got to be able to get actually access the information to make the informed decision, and I think very much the, the organisation should be key within that when you sign up. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I don't know about you, but last time I got my car insurance policy, it went on for about 20 pages. Um, and um, I wouldn't presume to understand um, half of the information that general practitioners are, are, are sent, or practitioners in general are sent in regard to insurance. Uh, the, the whole emphasis comes down again to the profession bodies. You, you, you have to, the, the, they're, they're the people that are going to be paying for the legal advice, going to be paying to simplify the process for you and um, if nothing else can direct you now they're, they're not going to be covered to give you insurance advice um, but they may be able to to direct you to those who can on specific questions yeah and is there an opportunity with some of the the bigger organizations you know a lot of them do these block insurances that they could actually start to tighten up some of that on behalf of the members uh, I think it's unlikely that they're going to be able to have much of an impact on that. Those are um, done in such a way that that would be extremely challenging. Um, however, um, I've, I've, my view is that by protecting the member at, at source, um, they, then they make sure they, they don't run into that situation. Right. Well, that's been fascinating insight. And thank you, Barry, very much for sort of guiding us through that process. And I feel at least for anyone who is listening to this podcast, it gives you a good insight into the key areas you need to be considering when going into practice or if you're already in practice and you want to protect yourself in this rather over-censored environment that we find ourselves in, particularly at a time when CAM practitioners are going to be more needed now, I think, than ever before. 
all sorts of things to do with long COVID, for instance, I think are, are going to be very important. And I think it's important to get behind an organisation that is actually going to look after your interests and promote that opportunity, particularly at a time when the NHS has got a reported two-year waiting list. I think CAM practitioners could do a lot to help and support in that area. So uh, with that, just a very big thank you, Barry. Thank you for all of that information. And I hope maybe we can, can do this again sometime. An absolute pleasure. Thank you for, for having me on.